Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this afternoon's event. Uh, my name is Minou Shafiq. I'm the director of the London School of Economics, and I'm very pleased today to welcome David Goff, Secretary of State for Works and Pensions here at the LSE today. David Goff was appointed Secretary of State just last year after having served as an MP since 2005. And before that, he was Secretary to the Treasury, where I had the pleasure of working with him briefly when I was at the Bank of England. His talk today will be on the theme of welfare, from beverage to the fourth industrial revolution. And it is the first event, actually, in the Beverage 2.0 initiative that we've launched at the LSE just last week. As most of you know, 75 years ago this week, there were queues forming on Kingsway around the corner as people were lining up to get a copy of the Beverage Report. Uh, it was written by one of my, probably my most distinguished predecessor here at the school. And his vision of vanquishing the five giants of want, idleness, disease, squalor, and ignorance captivated the public imagination. And it became the best-selling government report ever and remained the best-selling government report ever for the next 20 years. So it's incredibly appropriate and fitting that on the 75th anniversary, David Gogg has come to talk to us about Beveridge's legacy and the future of the welfare state and how we can make it fit for the 21st century economy. I'll turn it over to him. Well, thank you, Manisha. It's a very great pleasure to be here, and can I uh, thank you for hosting uh, today's event. It is, as you say, the most appropriate venue, I think, uh, for this topic. Now, 75 years ago, in the depths of war, William Beveridge produced the report that became the foundation of the modern welfare state. 75 years on, it is still at the centre of discussions on welfare. It is that rare thing, a government command paper, which seized the imagination of the nation and became a focus of hope for the post-war future. The principles he set out and the challenges he identified remain an important part of the system we have today. Much has stood the test of time, but the world beverage view has changed in some profoundly important ways. We need to celebrate the strengths of the system we have, which day in and day out provides essential support to millions of people. But we need to be ready to think, as he did, about new solutions to new challenges to test the system of today against the needs of tomorrow. I will be arguing that the future welfare state must continue to hold work at its heart while becoming ever more personalised and holistic in order to meet the needs of future populations. Above all, we need the confidence to change and adapt to build a welfare system for the 2020s and 2030s as Beveridge did for the 1940s and 1950s. Beveridge wanted a system which was universal for those in work. He recognised, as we do today, that the state should provide support, but should never be the whole answer. The state, he wrote, should offer security for service and contribution. The state in organising security should not stifle incentive, opportunity, responsibility. In establishing a national minimum, it should leave room and encouragement for voluntary action by each individual to provide more than the minimum for himself and his family. And those words also remind us that Beveridge's system was fundamentally based on contributions. 
It was, above all, a national insurance system. Beveridge's proposals were hugely popular. I can tell you with some confidence that a policy with 86% popular support and 86% opposition is one of which politicians' dreams are made. But political and economic realities intrude even on the most popular of policies. The post-war welfare state differed in some important ways from Beveridge's vision. The country never got the contributory system that he quite envisaged. It would have been politically unacceptable to defer the introduction of the new retirement pensions until the contributory fund had matured, necessitating the pay-as-you-go approach we still see today. We've always had a national insurance system in name only since its foundation. It has been supplemented by taxpayers. Perhaps more fundamentally, Beveridge didn't and probably couldn't have an couldn't have anticipated the profound social and economic changes of the second half of the last century. 75 years on, the social, economic and political context has been transformed. Real disposable income per head has almost quadrupled. Life expectancy at birth has risen by almost 15 years. Life expectancy at age 65 has risen by over 8 years. Child mortality has fallen from over 55 per thousand live births in 1931 to just 3.7 in 2015. And the proportion of people who own their own homes has more than doubled. Those changes are closely linked to changes in patterns of employment. Uh, Today, more than 70% of women are in work, up from just over a quarter in 1939. 15% of all workers are now self-employed, almost double what it was in 1950. A further 4% are estimated to work in the gig economy, something which did not exist a decade ago. And there has been increasing recognition in recent decades of the need to support people in low-paid work, in addition to those who are without work altogether. So the context for welfare has moved a long way since beverage, as have our expectations of it. So where are we now? Our view of welfare is one with work at the heart, one that is personalised, using professional work coaches and modern digital tools to provide tailored, holistic support, one which recognises and supports progression within work, as well as the initial move into work, (coughs) and one which balances the support with clear expectations of the claimant. Beverage principles, however, remain a good starting place for thinking about the modern welfare system. You recognise the importance of putting something in, as well as taking something out. He was fundament- his was fundamentally a contributory system. You were insured because you paid your stamp, quite literally for many people. That's still true today, though the stamps are long gone. But our expectation now is that people also contribute in a broader sense where they are able to do so. That may be by looking for work, it may be by building up hours in work, it may be by developing skills and earning potential. We have a right to expect people to support themselves whenever they can and to the full extent of their capability. We have built these expectations into the claim and commitment where welfare recipients agree to a specific set of actions to ensure that they move towards and enter work. 
the commitment and the work-focused approach behind it is in fact the embodiment of the new contributory principle. In other words, for many, the financial support provided by benefits is conditional upon demonstrating their determination to eventually support themselves from their own earnings. But at the same time, we also recognise that some people will always need support from the state and from society as a whole. A modern welfare system should support aspiration, helping people to fulfil their potential. It should be focused on work, enabling success in the labour market. It should be based on evidence, continuously learning and building on the approaches that achieve its aims. It should be both affordable and sustainable, supporting economic growth. And it should be personalised. People are not all the same. They have different needs. So we should offer different support with tailored expectations that reflect individual circumstances. This mirrors changes in the wider environment. We increasingly expect personalised services in other aspects of our lives. We should expect no less of our welfare system. Because, of course, welfare always operates within a wider economic and social context. Beveridge designed the welfare system for the world of his time, and we must do the same for ours. We are now facing the challenge of what some have called the fourth industrial revolution. The first industrial revolution harnessed the power of water and steam for mechanisation. The second brought electric power and increasing mass production. The third was about automation, driven by computers. And now the fourth heralds the arrival of a new range of technologies, which bring both great opportunities and enormous changes. Each of the first three revolutions brought huge increases in productivity and in standards of living. We are immeasurably better off because of them. But each of those revolutions also disrupted many people's lives. Jobs which look secure from generation to generation vanished, sometimes with great speed. Each revolution has created many more jobs than it destroyed, but that does not mean that it was always easy for those affected. The fourth industrial revolution brings the same challenges and the same opportunities. We are already seeing impacts on the pattern of the jobs as well as their content. The gig economy matches people and tasks much more dynamically than we've been used to. Communications technology allows people to access services not just here, but from the other side of the world. There is a real opportunity, though, as, as Matthew Taylor has argued in his report to the Prime Minister, to focus on good work, work organised to be fulfilling in itself as an enriching part of our lives. We need increasingly skilled workers to deliver increasing value for themselves, for their employers, and for the wider economy. And good employers know how to unlock that value by investing in their people through training and development, and by being flexible in helping employees manage the balance between their work and wider lives. Every past industrial revolution has created jobs which were unimagined, and unimaginable from the perspective of the old world. In 1900, 13% of the workforce was employed in agriculture. That proportion is now 1%. But we are not surrounded by unemployed farm workers. The descendants of those farm labourers of a century ago work in an economy with unemployment at historically low levels, doing jobs their great-great-grandparents could not have dreamed of. 
The transition will undoubtedly be challenging. For some, it will be personally stressful and painful. For others, it will be a time of enormous new opportunities. But I strongly believe that the fourth industrial revolution will deliver the same positive step change in our collective wealth and well-being that resulted from the first three. We need new technologies to be spread more widely in order to improve productivity and make jobs better. Our mission is to best position the workforce to take advantage of these new opportunities. Automation promises to liberate us from dull, dirty, difficult and dangerous jobs, to free us to work with technology to create new products, new work and new roles, the like of which we have yet to imagine. The fourth industrial revolution presents so many new opportunities. In our industrial strategy, we set our sights on making the UK a global centre for artificial intelligence and data-driven innovation. We are determined that this country should be among the world leaders in adopting the next generation of technology. And we are determined that everyone should benefit from the changes it brings. Of course, there is an alternative, gloomier view that the future will be worse, that work will wither away, that a significant proportion of the workforce will become effectively unemployable, and that others will live in fear that their job will be next to go. This leads some to conclude that the most we can do is pay out cash to everyone to compensate for this state of affairs. In other words, a universal basic income. The more positive case, I suppose, is that technology does and we humans can relax and enjoy ever greater leisure time. There's a seeming simplicity in having no forms to fill in, no conditionality, no job centre to go to, no one trying to advise you. The security of knowing that you would have a stable, predictable income indefinitely without effort. But I have to say I am far from convinced. The arguments against the universal basic income are formidable. In my view, technological and economic change is making the case weaker, not stronger. Some jobs will disappear, but work will not. Work matters now and will matter in the future, not just because of the income it provides, but because of the place that it gives people in society. Work can give the worker self-respect, dignity and the confidence that they are involved, that they are contributing, uh, that what they do matters. We cannot give up on this. Those receiving support have a right to expect that the government will be helping them to find work and to adapt to economic change. That is not something to be ashamed of. A universal basic income would be a retreat for the future. It would mean that we will give up on this effort, that we would give people a handout, not a hand up. And we shouldn't give up on the principle of something for something. Those who can contribute should do so. I've talked about the importance beverage attached to contributions and how we have carried that principle forward into the modern welfare system. Payments are conditional on making a contribution, either financial or in terms of effort to get into the labour market. An unconditional universal basic income is completely at odds with that principle. It requires that hard-working people subsidise those who have chosen not to work, that there is no need to contribute and human nature being what it is, we should be concerned at the pro prospect of legitimising the decision simply to opt out, creating communities of workless dependence. Moreover, a true universal income is by definition 
poorly targeted. The same payment given to everyone will not take account of disability or caring responsibilities. It requires that we ignore the specific needs of those who most deserve our collective support. An affordable basic income would be inadequate, and a basic income that's adequate for all would be unaffordable. Now, I've already said that uh, what the future lies in support that is increasingly tailored to the needs of the individual. Not a crude, single-serving for everyone. It should help the working-age population to make the most of a changing economy, not turn away from it. This approach is already underpinning the reforms that we've introduced since 2010. Take universal credit. EC reinforces the huge practical advantages of a single integrated support system. It is designed so that support is withdrawn gradually as people become more self-sufficient. The transition from unemployment to work is no longer abrupt, with far less financial disruption and uncertainty. And it is designed to help people progress further once they are working. It is no surprise that poverty rates are higher in families where no one works full-time. This is why we must continue to use UC to support more people in more households to work full-time where they are able to do so. A similar situation arises for those who are self-employed but on low pay. Again, we must use our integrated system to help people build up to greater self-sufficiency. Our pensions reforms and our approach to fuller working lives demonstrate our response to the need to adapt in this case, to an ageing society. Auto-enrolment has used behavioural science to increase the number of people saving to workplace pensions. The steps to introduce the new state pension and to end contracting out have also let people know what they can expect from the state. This means that we are getting the right balance, we're getting the right balance right between the contributions people make during their working lives and the support they receive in later life. These measures have simplified the pension savings journey for individuals. A clearer offer from the state allows people to plan and save for their retirement more easily and with more certainty. Implementing um, uh, these reforms is at the heart of my role. But it is also important to think about where we go next. Our relentless focus on helping people to get into work has delivered results. When unemployment fell to 5% early last year, many people thought it couldn't get much lower, and yet it now stands at 4.3%. This achievement should not make us lose sight of the need to support people still further, especially those on low incomes, to get into work and progress once in work. We know that the jobs of the future will be different, so we should help people to benefit from the new opportunities that the coming change will bring. People will need to gain new skills to secure meaningful and productive employment throughout their lives. In the budget, we announced a unique partnership between employers, unions and government, a new national retraining scheme to help people adjust to the changing world of work. We also know that new ways of working can enable those with caring responsibilities to work flexibly and those with health conditions to stay in work. We should seize these new possibilities too. It means we need to build on a work coach's ability to connect with people, to provide encouragement and support, build resilience and develop potential. 
Just last week, I announced a new programme of mental health awareness training for work coaches in order to further these aims. New technology will provide us with additional opportunities. Increased automation, machine learning and big data will provide ways of tailoring our services. This offers huge potential to improve the customer experience, identify those most in need of help, and to successfully target the important support that only work coaches can provide. We are exploring new ways of providing support online, using a test-and-learn approach to see how people respond and making adjustments as we go along. We are also testing new data sources, including online vacancy data. This data has the potential to help us to understand changing job and skill demands, enabling us to better signpost people to the opportunities that are out there. We are also learning from other countries. Just this week, uh, my officials met their Dutch and Belgian counterparts. They shared insights and built on their pioneering use of data to identify those people who need different kinds of support so it can be better targeted towards them. In early 2018, we will publish our areas of research interest to increase collaboration with academics in putting evidence at the heart of our decisions. Public expectations are changing. Our own data tells us that people access their online benefit claim accounts 24 hours a day. In the rest of our lives, we are all coming to expect services, from online shopping to social media, that respond and develop to suit us and our lifestyles. The welfare state needs to be able to keep up. We must not forget, though, that we also need to do more to support those who face the greatest barriers to work, including people with disabilities, mental health issues, lone parents with young children, and others with caring responsibilities, and those experiencing several barriers in the same household. We will explore how to improve access to occupational health services, as well as improving interaction between people and health and welfare services. We are keen to make the best use of technology, which can provide crucial support to removing barriers to work. We will support and encourage employers to confidently recruit and retain those with health conditions. Most importantly, we will continue to build our offer of personalised employment support. More personal, more tailored, more holistic, that is the welfare state that I envisage. Over the 75 years since Beveridge produced his report, the welfare system has constantly adapted to changing circumstances, to new priorities and to expectations. Today's welfare state, work, economy and society all look vastly different from those of the 1940s. The fourth industrial revolution brings with it fresh new challenges. The best welfare systems help to ensure that societies can embrace change, to enable people to make the most of the opportunities created by a new and fast-moving economy, to build on new technologies to improve the support we give, to keep hold of the principle of support for those who need it in exchange for a commitment to contribute, and to keep work at its heart, adapting to help those who can while supporting those who can't. If we are optimistic about the future, as Beveridge was, if we take the opportunities presented by a changing world, as Beveridge did, then we can look forward to the next 75 years with confidence. Thank you very much.
very much for that. I, uh, I'm going to open the floor to, for questions. There are roving mics around. If you could introduce yourself and then ask your question. Uh, let me open it up there. About over here. And then one in the back. Hi, thank you. My name is Luca. I'm a student here at Civic Arts at UNC. And I want to touch on one of the points that you mentioned earlier in your speech about how work helps people define themselves in society. And don't you think that actually this new fourth revolution and access to human space income could help us change that sense of self fulfillment that we derive from being productive workers and consumers to something more fulfilling? Um, that could be different and not be work in the modern sense, but maybe uh, leisure, for example, in the sense that the ancient Greeks had of just doing like astronomy and mathematics for fun and not for uh, money. I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical, uh, I have to say, and um, my, my view is that, uh, as, as I argue in my remarks, that I do think that work does give people a, a purpose. We need to you know, ever increase the quality of that work, but I think work does give, give people uh, that purpose. And although uh, I accept that you know, if you have a universal basic income, I guess there will be some people who will be... You know, fall into the sort of Athenian ideal and spend their time, um, you know, their spare time studying mathematics and astronomy. Um, but um, I, I am I am sceptical that that is necessarily what would happen across the board. Uh, and uh, I do think that that participation work can play a really uh, helpful, useful role, giving people purpose. You know, there is increasing evidence of the link, for example, between work and mental health. Um, and I think general uh, well-being uh, from the purpose that, that, that work provides. Uh, and uh, I mean, I think that's an interesting sort of parallel, if you like, with um, uh, I suppose the one area in life where we do have a universal basic income uh, is uh, with those who are retired. Uh, and uh, uh, but I think I think that that parallel doesn't only takes us. Uh, so far, but you see some people who are very successful, if you like, in terms of retirement, that make the use of their time, and others perhaps less so. But I, I do think that, um, uh, that that Athenian ideal is unlikely to be delivered for, for that many people. Okay, one in the back. I'm Ryan Shortcut, sorry for the quite a good Thank you for your speech, and particularly welcome your arguments against universal basic income. I just want to pick up on contributory based benefits because since the 80s there's been a decline uh, in the overall uh, proportion of benefits which are contributory based, they are more needs based. Indeed, your flagship for universal credit is entirely a needs based uh, uh, benefit system. What about looking at strengthening contribution, for example, running a contributory supplement in universal credit? I think, I suppose, particularly in the context of the universal credit, a contributory supplement, I would worry, would add complication to a system that is designed to be as simple as, as possible. So I'm, I'm slightly sceptical about that. It's a very good point that you make that we have tended to move away from uh, the contributory principle. Um, as I mentioned in my remarks, we never really had that purely contributory principle, but when it came to the state pension, for example, there was always a pay-as-you-go um, uh, element to it, so it wasn't entirely based on your contributions. But why did we move away from it? I think because as, as a society, 
Um, with limited resources, I think we have uh, generally believed that those resources should be directed at those who need it most. And I think that's a perfectly reasonable approach to take. Um, but where I do think it is important is, uh, and, and where, you know, the reason why I think the contribution principle is, 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 is at one level very attractive is because as a society we, we don't like the idea that people are just taking and not putting in. And my sense is that the, the way that we should view our welfare system is we provide support to people who need it, but those people who need it, we should expect them to contribute in the best way that they can, which is to, you know, if, if, if they're able to look for work, if they're able to bring themselves closer to the labour market, then they should do so. Uh, and as we become you know, ever more sophisticated in our ability to make accurate assessments of that, then I think that's the direction I would go in rather than returning to um, a, a more contributory system uh, that we had a few decades ago. Okay. So one in the front and one in the middle there, and then the third one here. Why don't we take them as all three and then yeah. you can... Hi, I'm Sharon. I'm third year student at uh, doing international relations. Well, thank you for your speech, and... Um, I think the UK and like the NHS is synonymous with the welfare state, and in a sense, it holds like the bastion of like the welfare state as we understand it internationally. But with shifting context, so like with the impending deadline of Brexit and implications of talent flow, as well as recent claims of tax evasion, what do you think is the sustainability of the welfare project, and how feasible do you see this moving forward? Stick the one in the middle, then. Um, my name is Kate, I'm doing a PhD in the Department of Social Policy here. Um, I suppose the questions about the use of the term welfare state wouldn't be in a way that Beveridge himself recognised it, in that it was sort of a package of things including education and health and things, and, and the shift towards it being based around working at the centre is quite a shift. And I wonder why and how you can justify that self focus. And within that, I think related to universal credit. Um, that shift to focus on work means that especially uh, other groups and maybe other people in particular, children, become increasingly sort of um, invisible to that system. So universal credit is now packaging up payments that before were labelled for or quite specifically for, for children and reflection on different groups obviously aren't going to be workers and how the welfare state is meeting your welfare Hello, Devin Browning, the Director of Policy Practice and Pharmacy Management at the University of Scale for the Centre for Justice. You mentioned a couple of times in your speech why digital tools for, for a more holistic, extended um, service from provided by work coaches. And I was wondering whether you could paint a picture of that, just given the pace of change that's happening, that you believe the department could, could try to achieve perhaps, perhaps as early as, as by the end of this parliament and really what the biggest barriers are to Accelerating that shift. Fine. That's a, that's a, a really easy question. Yeah, no, great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we got, right. First, I'll try to First of all, do I think the welfare state is sustainable? I said that's a do. Um, um, I think it needs to be a modern welfare state. I do think it, it, it needs to be um, one that is actually quite focused on work to, 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 to partly address the subsequent question. Because if you have a welfare state that is essentially about paying for a larger and larger population to be dependent upon it, 
then I do think you run real dangers about sustainability. But if what the welfare state can be one that, uh, I mean, it's a, I use the old cliche in my um, speech about a, you know, a hand up, not a hand out, but, but it's quite a good way of summarising what a good welfare state needs to do. And I think as long as we can do that, we can then also afford to provide the support for those who will not be able to work, and, and it's important that we, we, we do both. But I do believe it is uh, sustainable. Indeed, I would make the argument that a, um, you know, a good modern welfare state can enable an economy and a society to adapt to fast-moving changes in a way that without it might not happen. Um, so it's a way of, of, of maintaining public support to, for example, you know, have uh, a liberal policy on trade to uh, embrace new technology. I think a welfare state can complement uh, those uh, attributes which are actually vital for a strong economy. In terms of the question that I, uh, I, I my speech focused overwhelmingly on welfare, um, and why did I do that? Partly, I suppose, because I'm the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. Uh, but you, but it's a fair it's a fair point and, and and one of the points that I I think I've tried to touch upon was the fact that you know when it comes to uh, helping people I do think you know work is, is is really important but how do we get there Sometimes it's not just about you know applying for jobs having your CV updated you know making sure that you go to interviews and so on. It's also about addressing some of those barriers to work, and that might be educational, it might be health, um, it could be a whole range of uh, factors. And I think increasingly over time, as we get more sophisticated in our use of data, I think we want to, um, if you like, bring down the barriers. I mean, Beveridge talked about the five giants, and, uh, and, and you know, hence we ended up with sort of five ministries dealing with each of them. Um, and, and to some extent, the way in, we, in which we can be holistic, uh, which is a word I use a lot, I think helps us uh, address that. Um, in terms of the point about children, look, I mean, there's you know, important family support. Yes, it is within uh, universal credit, but clearly what you get within universal credit is tailored to your particular circumstances, including uh, you know, how many children you have, in the same way that tax credits operates. Uh, in that way, so um, you know, I think it is still uh, you know, a family su- support, um, but yes, it is less sort of split up into its individual component parts. But the advantage of universal credit uh, is that it does uh, um, it does help uh, deal with a range of circumstances, and as in people's lives, circumstances change. You're not left with uh, significant disruptions, um, which which I think can happen uh, otherwise. And in terms of digital, yes, I, I stressed a, a lot of that. I mean, it's already quite striking what is happening with, for example, Universal Credit, the way that the journal is used by claimants and DWP uh, staff as a means of communication. This is an online journal. Uh, it does, you know, the evidence is so far showing that it is helping people in terms of their interaction with uh, DWP and I think there's you know, more and more that can be done to, uh, over time uh, to improve that system so that the experience of the claimant becomes uh, much, much uh, you know, as, as, as easy as possible. Um, I think over time... 
the way in which we can use digital technology. I think it's possible to uh, you know, necessarily even uh, identify it now. But if we are capable of, for example, becoming more and more sophisticated in our understanding of the individual claimant, uh, and, and digital technology can enable us to do that, we can become more and more sophisticated in providing the support that that individual needs to fulfil their potential. Uh, and I think that's why I think the opportunities for more personalised and more holistic support, again, you know, the opportunities here can, can often be between one government department and another government department. Uh, the more that we can do that, the better the support that we can provide. And we've started that journey with Universal Credit. Can I ask a question? Uh, turn to the audience back to the audience in a moment. We know that there are these big structural changes ahead of us in the active la- in, in the labour market, which you outlined as part of the fourth industrial revolution. And the UK spends relatively less than most countries on active labour market policies, the things that the Nordics are really good at, and the Dutch and the Danes and others. Should we be spending more? And if we were to do more to prepare workers for these new jobs, what kinds of things do you think tend to work? Yeah, it's, it's a good challenge. I mean, the first um, you know, point I would make is that we, we have relatively little fiscal headroom. So, so the idea of... Um, and, you know, I wasn't a Treasury Minister for seven years for nothing. <laughs> so I'm not about to launch into a load of, sort of spending commitments on that. But you know, we, we, we do have to be mindful of that. Um, I think a lot of the... Um, the, the challenges... I mean, my, 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 my personal view is that uh, a lot of the qualities that will be important in the workforce in the decades ahead will very often be the softer skills, as, as so-called, but you know, the ability to um, demonstrate empathy, the ability to work with people, the ability to communicate. All of those are going to be um, uh, very important, and you know, whether that is... Um, uh, you know, whether that's taught at school to the extent that there's sort of, sort of you know, natural capability there, to the extent that that is um, uh, you know, something that is easy necessary for the state to step, step in. But I think that the, you know, clearly lifelong learning is going to be a part of where the welfare state will have to be in the years ahead. Go back to the audience. Maybe we'll take one more round of questions. One here and then one in the back. Is that Tony I see in the seen in the UK in recent years with very high levels of employment is, is, a, is a really good thing um, and that uh, uh, the fact that we have a flexible labour market uh, has helped us to deliver that uh, so I'm not going to be you know, critical of, 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 of that as such I also think that flexibility enables us to respond to technolo- technological changes uh, and that is going to be very important for the economy uh, in the years ahead. 
I think our, our challenge, particularly in this context, is to have a welfare state that works with the economy, uh, that helps encourage um, people to fulfil their potential, uh, enables them to progress in work. And I think one of the challenges for the welfare system that I touched on in the context of, for example, self-employment and part-time work, which are two important elements of our flexible labour market, is how do we ensure that the welfare system properly works with those different types of, 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 of employment uh, to ensure that, it, it, that people don't find themselves trapped, for example, not able to work more than 16 hours uh, a week without running into difficulties with their welfare, or that they find themselves in a self-employment in self-employment in a job that essentially isn't sustainable without very substantial subsidy by the taxpayer, um, and that um, that goes on for year in year in year out, uh, and that's something that I think we need to make sure that we address. Although I don't underestimate the challenges. Tony Travers and the Travers. In the 75 years since the state of Canada came into existence, spending on social security added to NHS spending, education spending, broader spending, has continued to rise as a share of total expenditure through the, more or less continuously through that whole period. And that means that defence, local government, home office, and other now, as the government is committed to reducing public spending to 38% of GDP, is it possible to sustain, I think it's the earlier question, is it possible to sustain uh, spending on broadly defined welfare at anything like its current size? So will we either A, have to offer less at the state, or B, put taxes up? Well, I... I mean, to... to I mean, I think there is very clear evidence that wealthier, wealthier economies always find themselves spending more on health, for example. There's a clear um, trend in that direction, and our expectations of healthcare um, rise uh, greater than, 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 than um, the economy tends to grow uh, over, over a period. And I've no doubt that we'll continue to spend substantial sums of money on issues like uh, health and indeed education, which I think is a sort of similar, similar pattern. Um, I think it's why, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's a good challenge for us, but it's why we need to spend uh, that money wisely. Um, I think, you know, I haven't particularly focused on the fiscal case against UBI, but there is a very, very strong fiscal case against uh, U- UBI, and that's why I think uh, a, a welfare state that is focused on being dynamic, if you like, that is that has an objective of making as many people as possible not dependent upon it, uh, is 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 the only way in which we can have a sustainable uh, welfare state. I mean, anyone who spent any time looking at the OBR's long-term fiscal projections um, tends to uh, not be filled with. Um, great joy, uh, and uh, I suppose if I was sort of returning to my previous role as Chief Secretary to the Treasury, you know, a lot of this is going to be about delivering public services that are increasingly efficient. Where I think technology has a huge 
part to play, <coughs> that um, you know, the full implications of, for example, the fourth industrial revolution as to how we deliver public services is not yet understood, but that there must be considerable potential for us to deliver public services um, uh, more efficiently, continuing to improve their quality but reducing the burden uh, on the taxpayer. Uh, and if we can do that, then I think that is the way in which we can uh, sort of square that circle. I think there might be time for one more question if there's an urgent one in the audience. That, that's it. Tim Frost, yes. I have a Tim Frost, I'm an emergency governor here. Secretary of State, you used the word sceptical to describe your disposition a number of times. Uh, can I ask you to reflect personally, were you always sceptical, or has this role made you nervous? <laughs> <laughs> so, sceptical in general, not sceptical. Um, there are some things I'm less sceptical about, but um, I'm certainly sceptical about uh, uh, UBR. Now, it, it's, it's, uh, um, it's a real privilege to, to, to have the role of Secretary of State for work and pensions. Um, and uh, as a department, we affect millions of lives. Uh, my view is that we are in the middle of delivering a fundamental reform, a really big uh, change in our welfare system in terms of delivering universal credit. I was, uh, I was at a job centre yesterday, uh, Watford, and she covers part of my constituency. And uh, universal credit full service is, is, uh, was being rolled out in parts of that as of yesterday. And the enthusiasm by the work coaches for what is happening is immense. Uh, and so, um, you know, to some extent, if you think I'm sceptical now, you should have seen me six months ago before I joined uh, the Department for Work and Pensions. <laughs> After seven years of the Treasury, maybe I was very sceptical. But I'm, 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 I'm rediscovering some idealism. Okay. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. Thank you, David, God, Secretary of State, for for joining us today and, and helping us launch the debate about Beverage 2.0. Uh, the issues you raise are huge. We know they're complicated. There are no easy answers, but these are some of the biggest questions of our time, and that's why we at the LSE are going to spend this year thinking about these big issues. We've got a big research festival coming in February, which we're welcome to join, with several debates about universal basic income, as well as uh, debates about other aspects of the welfare state. Uh, so I invite all of you to join us in February, but there will also be many other events throughout the year. But thank you very much for getting us off to such a great start. Thank you. Thank you.